So First City Church unapologetically claims that we are a gospel-centered church. Now, for some of you, that term gospel-centered is, is familiar. You've heard that language. You've heard that label before. Some of you, it may be somewhat new. You've heard it thrown around a few times, but, but you're still kind of figuring out what that means. Others of you, it may be something entirely new. What, is, what does that mean? And that's a good question for all of us. We can say gospel-centered, but what does gospel-centered even mean? What does it mean to be a gospel-centered church? Does it simply mean it's a church that preaches the gospel? Yes, to some degree. To, to, to be a gospel-centered church, we have to preach the gospel. We have to faithfully teach the gospel. But it's something far deeper than that. Because here, here's what often happens. The gospel can sort of be presented as the doorway into Christianity. Like, that's how we get into, into Christ. That's how we get into the church. And, and other things become the foundation. Other things become the, the structure in which we build. But to be gospel-centered means it is the gospel that shapes not only how we enter into the church and enter into Christ, but shapes the very nature of our life as a church. It shapes the structure and the culture and our ministry philosophy and practices. So to be gospel-centered means that the gospel is not just the door, it's the entirety of the Christian faith. Now, we can say we're gospel-centered on paper, And one of the challenges is that it's very easy to do that, sort of put, hey, here's all the ways that we're gospel-centered on paper, but not live out the gospel as being the power that we continually depend on and the power we build our life as a church on. See, the danger for any church is to assume the gospel. It's to assume that everybody knows what the gospel is. It's to assume that we, yeah, yeah, we got that, and then we move on. And the scary thing is, is that when we assume the gospel, when we move away from the gospel as the central aspect of our life as a church, then we start to move away from our power as Christians. We start to build our practices on other things rather than the truth of Jesus Christ. And so it's good for us to regularly take time to remind ourselves of the basics, of the fundamentals, of what it means to be gospel-centered. We don't want gospel-centered to be an empty slogan just something we throw around and slap on our letterhead and slap on our website. So for the rest of September, the next four weeks, we're going to dive into First City's core value of gospel centrality. What we believe about the gospel, its power, and how it shapes all that we believe and all that we do as a church. And so for those of us that have been around from the beginning, hey, this is a good reminder for us. We need to be refreshed. We need to be reminded. And for those of you who are newer to First City, for one, hey, here's us sort of just putting ourselves out there. This is who we are as a church. This is what we believe. But more than that, we want you to be shaped by the gospel. We want the gospel to be central in your life as well. And so this is a, this is a way for you to be shaped whether or not this, is, this becomes your church home or somewhere else. So this morning, we're going to look at the passage from 1 Corinthians 15 that Brock read and reflect on this question. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ And why does it matter? And we're also going to think about what it means to have a gospel-centered theology. And here's the main idea I want us all to take to heart. Is the gospel of Jesus Christ is the historic, foundational, powerful, comprehensive story of God's redemption. The gospel is historic, it is foundational, it is powerful, It is a comprehensive story of God's redemption. So let's first look at what it means that the gospel is historic. 
So in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul declares, the gospel is historic, meaning the gospel tells of real people and real events that actually happened in history. This is what he writes. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared also to me. Jesus is an actual person who actually lived in history. Jesus was actually born He lived, he had an address, Jesus had a voice that you could hear, he had a physical form and features, he had a height and a weight, he had a personality type. Jesus actually walked the roads of Judea, he walked the streets of Nazareth and Jerusalem, his feet actually touched the earth, he actually ate food, he actually slept in a bed, he had conversations, Jesus actually healed, he actually cast out demons, he actually taught in the synagogue, And as Paul says, he was actually crucified and he was raised. Like these things took place in history. They are real. And here's what Paul's doing. He starts listing off all the people who saw Jesus resurrected. He said, first he came to Cephas, who was Peter. Then he went to the disciples. Then he appeared to 500 people. And notice the comment he makes. Hey, some of these people are still alive. And the Corinthians could go and interview these people. Then he appeared to the apostles, and then he said, and to James, and then he finally appeared to Paul. Paul is putting his credibility, he's putting the credibility of the gospel on the line. He's saying, hey, these things happened, check them out. Christianity has always put its historical credibility on the line. Later in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if Christ isn't raised, we should just pack it up and go home. It's pointless, it's worthless. There's no reason to fake this stuff. And the glory of the gospel is that it is historic. It is real. It is true. It took place in history. It is good news that is real. It's not fable. It's not mythology. It's not some inspiring story meant, us to, meant to cause us to live better lives. It is real and it is true. It is historic. And here's why this is good news for us today. That the gospel is historic means God is not distant. It means that God is not some abstract philosophical idea. It means that God is not some distant being disconnected from you and me. He's not someone who is indifferent to our sin and to our suffering. No, the glorious news of the historic gospel is that Jesus Christ became a man. And he entered into our world and he became intimately connected with our suffering and our grief. Jesus sat with the sick and the diseased. He sat with the demon-possessed and the afflicted. Jesus mourned and cried with those who lost loved ones. Jesus confronted corrupt leaders, and he became a willing target of their schemes. How Jesus is intimately connected with our grief and with our sorrow. He entered into our world, but he didn't just identify he also loved us. He, he cast out demons. He healed the sick and the diseased. He dismantled corrupt leadership structures. He proclaimed the gospel. He, he preached a message of salvation and redemption. He took on his body our sin and our shame and the scorn and the judgment that you and I deserve. 
that the gospel is historic, that Jesus Christ entered into the world shows just how much God loves us, just how near he is to us. Are you suffering this morning? Like, to be honest, are, are, are you suffering and are you experiencing, hey, where are you, God? Does it feel like God is detached and removed? The good news of the gospel, the good news that the gospel is historic, is that God is not indifferent. He's not detached. And so put your hope in this gospel. Put your hope in a historic gospel that declares that God is near. God loves you. He rescues. He redeems. He forgives. He comforts. That is the good news of a historic gospel. The gospel is historic, and it is also foundational, meaning it declares truths that are the bedrock of our faith. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, Paul writes this, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Believers in Jesus, we stand on the gospel. Like that's our foundation, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel isn't just the door, it's the foundation. It's the structure. We stand on it. No moving on to other things. And as our foundation, the gospel declares specific truth about the meaning of the life death and resurrection of Jesus. See, it's one thing to say these things happened. Hey, Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus was resurrected. But what does it all mean? What is the purpose of it all? And so the gospel tells us that there are foundational truths. There are things that this life, death, and resurrection mean, and those are the truths we build our lives on. Those are the things we stand on. And so here, here are the truths that Scripture lays out for us, kind of in a, in, a, in a summary. Each of these is worth unpacking and could be, you know, a year-long sermon series in and of itself. But, but here are the contours of the foundational truths of the gospel. First, God is a loving and holy and good creator. And that humanity, man and woman, though we were created perfect, we were created good, created to have an intimate relationship with God, we rebelled against God and his goodness and his, his sovereignty and his authority. And because of that, we are now sinful by nature and we stand under the righteous and good judgments of God. But God being love, not because of anything you and I have ever done or will do, but because he loves us, initiated a great plan of salvation to come after you and me, to come after sinners and save a people for himself. And he sends Jesus Christ into the world. Jesus saves his people by dying on the cross, being a substitute for you and I, and taking the personal wrath of God for sin. And then Jesus is gloriously resurrected to show that the debt of sin has been paid, the power of sin has been broken, that death is defeated, and that there is new life in Christ. And that Jesus ascended into heaven as the resurrected and reigning king, and he's coming back to restore all things under his rule. And our response to this message his repentance and faith. Here's the glorious good news. God graciously offers salvation to all mankind. Salvation is by faith. It is by faith. It is of grace. It is in Christ alone. 
And so we repent, we believe, we, we follow Jesus, we turn from our sin, we turn from trying to justify ourselves, and we follow Christ. That is our foundation, church. That is our hope, church. That is our life, church. Not our good works, not us trying to be good moral people, not us trying to perform for others so that we can create an identity for ourselves, not, not the comfort of wealth, not, not political affiliation, not national greatness. The gospel of Jesus Christ is our foundation. Oh, it is a glorious, glorious foundation. Build your life on that. That the gospel is foundational means something for us theologically as a church. How, how we view theology, how we approach theology, how we teach theology. See, we believe at the center of all of Scripture is the message of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Old Testament, New Testament, all point to Jesus Christ. All theology, I don't care what theological concept you have in mind, all finds its ultimate purpose and its ultimate fulfillment and the full expression in Jesus Christ. There's not a square inch of life, thought, theology, philosophy that the gospel does not address and touch and speak to. So what this means as a church is we build all of our theology, all of our practice on Scripture. But when we teach Scripture, when we teach theology, we do it with an eye to the gospel. We explain all of what we believe through the lens of the gospel and how it impacts and, and relates to and explains the gospel. And so the gospel shapes our theology. Here's what this also means. It also means that we define ourselves by our teaching and proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and not secondary issues. Like we have deep theological convictions about things like baptism, gifts of the spirits, end times, uh, election and predestination. I mean, you want to just name the theological idea. We, we have convictions about those things, but they are not the things that most define us. You know, one of the things that I love so much about this church, one of the things I will brag to other pastors and other people about this church is that we have members, committed members, who say, guess what? I love the gospel. I love the mission of First City. I'm not exactly there in your exact practice of maybe baptism, your exact view of predestination or the end times, but I'm all in because of the gospel. That's beautiful. That's powerful. That's the kind of church that we want to build where the gospel of Jesus unites us, not secondary issues. And so our gospel centrality leads us to, to affirm that, that great statement that in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. The gospel is our foundation. The gospel is central to our theology. Here's what we don't get to do then. We don't get to say this. Yes, I believe the gospel, but now I've moved on to more mature things. I, I've moved on to, you know, arguing and, and debating about the end times or culture and politics. Or I, I love to debate about predestination and election. You know, you know I, I believe the gospel, but all these other deeper things, that, that's, that's, I've moved on to that. That's the really important stuff. If that's you this morning... Um, if you've defined yourself by secondary issues and if you've determined what, co what community you can be in because of secondary issues, uh, can I just say a couple things to you lovingly? One, we will frustrate you as a church. 
because we're going to preach the gospel and we'll talk about secondary issues, but how they relate to the gospel. But, but if you want to come and debate me about how we need to make those things a bigger deal, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to tell you you're wrong. You're going to be frustrated and, and we're just going to have a weird relationship. <laughs> and, and, and can I also press on you just lovingly as a brother in Christ? Like, it, it, secondary important, issues are important. Like, like these things are important. That's why we have theological convictions about them. But if you detach the gospel, the centrality of the gospel from any theological issue, you go to some really weird and unbiblical places, both theologically and practically. And if you have a view of maturity that doesn't have the gospel as the center, you are going to hollow out and shallow out your maturity. Theologically, emotionally, relationally, you will be immature. Like true, deep Biblical maturity, whether it be socially, relationally, theologically, emotionally, philosophy of ministry, is all founded on the gospel. And so we want a gospel foundation to our theology and practice. The gospel is historic, the gospel is foundational, and the gospel is powerful. Meaning the gospel transforms rebellious sinners into beloved sons and daughters of God who walk in newness of life. 1 Corinthians 15, 8-10, Paul gives a bit of a testimony. He writes, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul was so aware of his place in the church. And this is why. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul never lost sight of the fact that he persecuted, he tried, to, he, he tried to kill Christians. He hated the church, and he never lost sight of that fact. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. And to say that Jesus radically transformed Paul is an understatement. He, he took a man who hated the church, who gave his life to destroy the church, and transformed him to a man who built the church probably like no other man in history. Radical transformation. That, that moment of transformation changed Paul. And if you are in Jesus Christ, the same thing happened to you. Took a rebellious sinner who hated God and transformed you into a beloved son or a beloved daughter. Oh, if you are in Jesus Christ, God radically and powerfully did something in your life. He breathed new life into that spiritually dead, rebellious, sinful heart and caused you to turn from your sin, turn from this world, turn from the evil one, turn from that desire and that impulse to try to justify yourself by who you are and turns you toward faith in Jesus Christ so that you would have faith in Christ and follow him as a disciple, follow him as the Lord and King of your life. you are now united to Christ. Here's the wonderful truth. You are united to Christ. You have the spirit of Christ in you, his power in you. And he is at work to renew you. He's at work to change and transform you so you walk in righteousness and goodness and truth. That is the gospel. That is the power of the gospel. In verse two, Paul tells the Corinthian church, it is, by the, it is the gospel by which they are being saved. Being saved, ongoing and present. 
You see, the gospel is not just this once-for-all declaration that our sins are forgiven and we're accepted and we stand blameless before God. Hallelujah, it is that. Once-for-all, finished. That is who we are. But the gospel is also a power, the power of ongoing renewal. Being saved, what Paul means here is that the gospel is transforming these Corinthian believers, transforming them into those who are becoming more and more like Christ. Look, God saves us where we are, but he doesn't leave us where we are. He loves us too much for that. He rescues, he saves, he forgives, but he also cleanses and he renews. He is pulling you out of the hell of sin and dysfunction and frustration and renewing you and bringing new life to you. And here, the gospel isn't just a set of historical facts It isn't just a set of facts on paper. It isn't just a statement of faith that we sign off on. It is a real life power. It is a life-giving unity with Jesus Christ by which he is changing you and transforming you. The gospel is a power. Here's my fear. My fear is that there are some of you in this room, you intellectually assent to the facts of the gospel, but you've actually never been transformed by the gospel. Like you can look at the facts on paper and you can sort of sign off on them, but you've actually never turned from your sin. You've actually never had the gospel renew you. You've actually never experienced Christ. And so you're kind of like the person who can look on paper and see the chemical uh, composition of honey. And, and you can look at it and go, yeah, yeah, I believe that honey is sweet, but actually have never tasted the sweetness of honey. Oh, the gospel is not intellectual assent. Like, let me, let me try to scare you here a little bit. Like intellectual scent is a super low bar. James 2.19 tells us demons believe God. Demons have the facts of the gospel right. Intellectual scent does not save. Have you experienced Christ? Have you turned from your sin and been renewed and transformed by the gospel? Are you believing the gospel? Is it a a power in your life? Here's the other aspect of this. For those of you that that are believers and and you have experienced renewal, uh, there's always this threat. There's always this war going on inside of us of how we're going to live out the power of the gospel in our life. Because it's very easy for us to slip into this. God saved me, gave me a clean slate, but it is now up to me to work for God It is now up for me to do the right thing so God likes me, so I stay in good graces. I have to sort of keep myself clean. Otherwise, God is not going to approve of me. God God is not going to look on me with favor. God is not going to like me. And so we're in this situation where we've got to perform. We've got to do all the right things. We, We sort of view salvation as, okay, God cleared out our debt in the bank account. Now it's on us not to go back into debt. And so we'll run after every book and article and podcast and every method that we can find to try to do it better. We'll run after every piece of advice to help us do things better. And we get on a pendulum swing. Swing over here, man, I'm doing okay, doing awesome, nailing it, prideful, feeling good about myself. People who aren't getting it frustrate me. And then when I fail, I swing over here to despair. God doesn't like me. God doesn't love me. God doesn't care about me. 
I'm a, I'm a failure. I'm pathetic. I can't do it. Look, there's no power in that pendulum swing. There's no power in that pendulum swing. That is not the gospel. That is not the power of the gospel. It doesn't say, hey, you've been given a zero in your bank account. Now don't go into debt again. It isn't God has sort of wiped away your sins. Now clean yourself up and keep yourself in God's good graces. That is not the power of the gospel. So church, we need a power greater than ourselves. We need the power of the gospel. We need gospel-empowered methods. This is why we confess sin and repent. This is why we pray. This is why we sit under the teaching of God's word. This is why we profess our faith. This is why we take the Lord's Supper. This is why we disciple one another. This is why we walk in obedience to Christ because these are the ways that the power of the gospel works in us and through us. God has promised to meet us in those things. God has promised to work through those things. So we don't do them to earn favor. Do you know that? Do you know, church, that you do not do those things to earn God's favor, but so you can more deeply experience the union that you have with Jesus? So his life can more transform you and change you and renew you and you can experience what he has given you in the gospel. Oh, we need gospel power. We need gospel-empowered methods. And when we chase after those ordinary means of grace, when we chase after and, and live in the good of those things that he has given us, oh, we experience that renewal, we experience that power, and we walk in greater faith and greater joy and greater peace and greater righteousness. The gospel is a power. So the gospel is historic. The gospel is foundational. The gospel is powerful. And finally, the gospel is comprehensive, meaning its truth and authority touch all of life. That God is the sovereign Lord and creator of all things, both visible and invisible, means his authority touches every square inch of our lives. He has a claim on all of us, our hearts, our minds, our bodies, our money, our sexuality, our jobs, our marriages, our parenting, our kids, our friendships, you name it, all of it, our politics. God has a claim on it all. His authority touches everything. And the gospel calls us to repentance and faith and to follow Jesus as the good and righteous and just king because here's also something that I'm afraid of I'm afraid that some of us cherry pick the gospel we, we cherry pick what we're going to believe we don't get to say Jesus is our savior and not our lord that's not the gospel that's not the biblical gospel the biblical gospel is that we follow Jesus all of us he is savior and lord and so if some of you in here, if, if you sort of did this, you, you walked an aisle or prayed a prayer to make Jesus your Lord because you didn't want to go to hell, who wants to go to hell? But, but Jesus has no claim on your life, that, that his person and his glory and his mission have no place in your life and in your heart and your affections. This is what scripture says, examine yourself. Examine yourself to see if you are actually in the faith. Now look, I'm not talking about struggling with sin. 
Like, we all struggle. We all need ongoing repentance and renewal. We need that ongoing life because we're going to be weak. We're going to sin. We're going to fail. We're going to have our doubts and our struggles. I'm not talking about that. I'm asking you, who has your heart? Like, with all of your mess, all of your sin, all of your brokenness, do you just say, Jesus, all my chips in are with, or all my chips are in with you. Like all my mess, I'm I'm jacked up. I am a hot mess. I am so jacked up. I am so broken. I am so sinful. But I am yours. Save me. That is what it means to follow Jesus. That is the comprehensive gospel. He has our all. We give him our all because he is the Lord. Here's what this also means means that the gospel is good news because it isn't just about saving our souls for heaven. Like the gospel isn't save us so we can escape creation. It is a message of renewal of the entire creation. Like God saves us and he's going to renew his good creation. Here's what Romans 8 says. This is also the apostle Paul when he wrote to the church in Rome. He talked about this great hope that we eagerly wait for in Christ And it's such a great hope because of the cosmic renewal that's going to take place. Listen to what verses 19 through 21 say. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Like the power of Christ's redemption is so comprehensive that it will transform all of creation. It will set creation free from the bondage of corruption and decay. Look, no more sickness, no more cancer, no more AIDS, no more MS, no more viruses. Like like no more mental illness, no more breakdown in our bodies, no more famine, no more natural disasters. All will be set right. All will be redeemed. All will be renewed. Jesus is going to set his creation free. The gospel is comprehensive. Even more, evil will be defeated and justice will prevail. This is later in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes, then comes the end. When he, meaning Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The good news of the gospel is not just that you and I and our sins can be forgiven, but that when Christ returns, he's going to bring justice to all who perpetuate evil. He brings justice to all who would oppress others. When Christ returns, he's going to destroy every rule and authority and a power that opposes him, and he will put his enemies under his feet. Jesus will reign as the rightful king. This is the comprehensive nature of the gospel. Full renewal, full justice, full peace, full equity. And so let's ditch this shallow gospel that's just about escape. And let's see the gospel for the comprehensive, wonderful, glorious message that it is. This is what Tim Keller writes in The Reason for God. When we look at the whole scope 
of the Bible storyline, we see clearly that Christianity is not only about getting one's individual sins forgiven so we can go to heaven. That is an important means of God's salvation, but not the final end or purpose of it. The purpose of Jesus' coming is to put the whole world right. Do you ever long for that? God, please put the world right. To renew and restore the creation, not to escape it. It is not just to bring personal forgiveness and peace, but also justice and shalom to the world. Like our world is clamoring and ranting and raging for justice and peace and wholeness. And so we try politics, uh, we, we try law, we try protests, we try education, we try economics, we try technology, we try science, we try mes- medicine, all while rejecting the comprehensive gospel that actually brings renewal and restoration. Look, those things aren't bad in and of themselves, but they're not saviors. They're not going to accomplish what only the gospel of Jesus Christ can accomplish. So are you putting your hope in a comprehensive gospel? The gospel is the historic, foundational, powerful, comprehensive story of God's redemption. The gospel is a story, a true story, a story of a loving creator on a great rescue mission to save sinners and renew his creation. This story gives us identity. This story gives our story meaning and purpose. And so let me ask you, are you living in the goodness of this story? Like no matter your sin, no matter your brokenness, no matter where you have been, the gospel saves your entire story. Not just the good parts, not just the kind of bad parts, all of it. And so is your story being defined by your sin and your brokenness and your mess and your effort, or is it being defined by God's great story of redemption? Our First City Church, may we be a people who see our story within the great story of God's redemption. May we be a people who live our lives in the power of the story, and may we be those who give our lives to proclaim the gospel story to our world. Amen.